morning, everyone. And welcome to those online as well. When you look at the northern lights, or perhaps when you hear a baby cry, or perhaps when you attend a funeral, or perhaps when you're running and seeing nature around you, as human beings, we instinctively get the sense that there is a power and a presence that is running through nature, running through what we see, running through what we feel, running through ourselves, whether that is in hearing an orchestra or an opera, or perhaps just lying awake in the middle of the night wondering what our purpose is and what we're made for. And that's a reality of the human condition. That's an experience that we're going to be talking about today. We're talking about transcendence. We're really talking about uh, God's omnipotence, God's transcendence, and we're going to touch a little bit on next chapter, chapter 14, omnipresence. And, and having said all three of those words in a row here, this is how I'm going to proceed today. Because uh, we have to get through a simple topic, but a very profound topic. And we need to get through it with an understanding of the human condition and how we perceive transcendence from our perspective in the material world. And so I'm going to give you some definitions for the conversation that we're going to have that will be important for us to know. And then I'm going to take one paragraph from A.W. Tozer's uh, chapter 13. And in that one paragraph, he will describe this thing that I just described, and he will pose the problem that we need to solve. And then thirdly, we'll compare Tozer's conclusions in that paragraph to Scripture in such a way that we see how God's transcendence is different than what we might think it is. And why, like all the other attributes of God that we've been studying, why it's important that he is transcendent, why his transcendence and the way he is transcendent is important to us as Christians, but also why it has a way of forcing itself into the importance of those who are not even sure of who he is, or even that he exists. And so the transcendence of God is a an important attribute that we need to unpack uh, carefully this morning and understand, and it will enrich us and, and help us make sense of these human experiences that we have. And I also just want to say at the beginning that this message is composed of about 80% introduction and 20% conclusion. So when I get to the point when I say the introduction is done, don't panic. We are literally just a page away from the end at that point. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this series that we're in the knowledge of the holy, that we get to read uh, this godly man, A.W. Tozer's book, his thoughts uh, on your word and on you. And uh, Father, I just pray that that all of us who are involved in these messages, hearing these sermons, but even more so involved in the life groups are growing in our knowledge of you and having a more and more accurate view of who you are so that we are worshiping the one true God and not worshiping just some idea of God that we prefer, but worshiping you as you really are and have shown yourself to us. So we pray that you would reveal yourself even more this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, So 
again, don't get discouraged, but I'm just going to throw some, some definitions at you so that you know the words that I'm using here and how to apply them. Omnipotence is having unlimited power. Most of us know that one, I think. Omnipresence is being present uh, and having an effect or having agency in every place. There's no place in which God does not have agency or the ability to act and work with his unlimited power. Transcendence means surpassing all natural limits, superior, unbounded, above or outside or other. And then secular, that which does not pertain to religion or spirituality, the regular everyday workaday world. Imminence or imminent frame, the immediate, the present, the physical world we interact with. There's not going to be a test, don't worry. Disenchantment. The devaluing and the loss of any sacred meaning and presence beyond the material. Deism, a belief that God may be a distant creator, unrevealed, unknowable, largely unconcerned with the universe he created, and subject to being known only by our reason. And finally, classic or Christian theism, belief in the traditional personal and present God as revealed in Scripture. So that's a lot of definitions. Okay, we're dealing with the secular, we're dealing with the material world, we're dealing with what's called the imminent or the imminent frame, we're dealing with the disenchantment of that world, the removal of the sacred, the belief that there is nothing else there, a, a, a categorizing or a containing of God as a, as a deity, one God among many, or maybe an all-powerful God, but who is far away and not present with us. He's a clockmaker who made a very complicated clock in the universe, and it's set running and it runs much by itself, pretty much, versus theism. So all of these things we're going to talk about, and that may seem like it's going to be a really big and complicated topic, but it's not big and complicated. It's nuanced, but it's very simple. We just need the right language to talk about it and the right understanding of why it's important. And so now let's see where this comes from, from Tozer and from Scripture. Um, Tozer describes the danger that we are in in our present modern age. On the second page of chapter 12 on omnipotence, page 66 in most of your books, Tozer writes this remarkable little paragraph that, that really unearths for us the heart of our study for the next week or so. The heart of transcend, the heart of the transcendence issue that we have to grasp. Here's what Tozer writes. One cannot long read the scriptures sympathetically without noticing the radical disparity between the outlook of men of the Bible and modern men. We are today suffering from a secularized mentality. Where the sacred writers saw God, we see the laws of nature. Their world was fully populated, ours is all but empty. Their world was alive and personal, ours is impersonal and dead. God ruled their world, ours is ruled by the laws of nature, and we are always once removed from the presence of God. That's how Tozer describes our problem with transcendence. And to be clear, Tozer's not denying the laws of nature or science, but rather rightly understanding that they are merely one way in which God has chosen to act or exert his agency in his omniscient power in creation. In fact, the laws of nature, Tozer goes on to talk about, are possible to quantify and predict as we do only because God is trustworthy and constant in his actions. But rather here, Tozer prefers that we see past that to see past our imminent frame, to see past our secular material world, 
And what he wants us to see here is that in our over-preoccupation with the footprints of God along the paths of creation, that's his language, it's very poetic, that is the natural laws, the material world are the footprints of God along the paths of creation, we have utterly lost sight of the one who treads those paths. That is the one who transcends and even created the laws of nature and nature. Or as we often see as a warning in Scripture, we must not let the created world that is so imminent, so present before our eyes, blind us from seeing the transcendent creator of the world. Now, Tozer's writing here in 1961, and he's an early observer of the danger of this cultural phenomenon that's taking place. If we were to fast forward about 50 years from 1961, when this paragraph was written, we can discover now that many modern thinkers and writers have actually picked up on this exact theme of Tozer's. The loss of the sacred, the disenchantment of the natural world, the depopulation of anything supernatural from the natural has left us as a culture, as a human race, and as individuals, sometimes even Christians, empty and disillusioned and despairing and ultimately dying as a people. In 2007, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor wrote a watershed book called The Secular Age, in which he examines the repercussions of the hyper-disenchantment or the radical elimination of the sacred from all natural human experience. And scores of other books have been written since 2007 in response to and attempting to address what Taylor has written, which, if I was to pull that book out, you would see is in large part a 900-page expansion of what Tozer wrote in one paragraph. Because Charles Taylor said, this is the problem of our age. We have, since the Enlightenment, stripped the world of everything transcendent. Colin Hansen is one writer who's produced a smaller book with contributions from 10 other writers and thinkers attempting to address the meaning of Taylor's 900-page book. And And I say all of this simply to emphasize only that although we may think that transcendence is sort of an obscure or only marginally important attribute of God, many of the deepest and best thinkers of the last hundred years have identified our loss of acknowledging and understanding transcendence as perhaps the most troubling problem of our age. It has led mankind, whether you you know, sort of rank-and-file people, workaday people realize it, it has led mankind down a very particular path, and it's not a healthy path. And philosophers and academics and deeper thinkers than me understand this. They see it in the footprint, in the fabric, in the fingerprint of our societies. Writing of his own generation, which is our generation, the Gen Xers and the Millennials and the Gen Yers and Zers, whoever they all are, are sort of the current clump of four generations that all live together right now. Uh, Colin Hansen writes this. He says, The decreasing numbers of Western youth who practice religion are indoctrinated, that is, they're indoctrinated now, into a version of Christianity that emphasizes God as distant and uninvolved, though concerned with our good behavior. Mostly, he just wants us to be happy. Religion aims to give us what we want in material or therapeutic terms. Of course, that is not how the Bible portrays God or how Christians have historically understood him. 
Now, this is a problem. This, this wrestling with the lack of the transcendent or the loss of the transcendent has real implications, not just on the world, but on Christianity. For the ancients, for virtually all people in all ages, all over the world leading up to the 17th century, whenever they saw creation, whenever they saw the natural world in their imminent frame, as Taylor calls it, they saw God both transcendent over creation and active in creation. God was always both creator and sustainer, infinite and personal, transcendent and imminent, unknowable and revealed. But in the modern age... The Taylor de- or that Tozer is describing, with the rise of the so-called Enlightenment, theism gave way to deism. No longer true theists who saw God complete in creation and sustaining, we were content to have a God that was only column A and none of column B. We want only a creator, only infinite, only transcendent, because God is safe if we keep him out there. We don't want a God that was sustainer and personal and imminent and revealed. That's far too uncomfortable. And so theism gave way to deism. There's a God and he made the universe and we see how he acts, but he's not really with us. And you're tempted to think that is almost more transcendent to think of God that way. He's so set apart from us and alien than us, and he doesn't muddy himself with us. And so there's sort of this sense of we're really emphasizing God's transcendence with deism. But that's not God's transcendence. And that kind of transcendence, that deism, has begun naturally to give way to atheism. Because once you have God distant and unconnected, you discover you don't need God at all. And so he can be removed. And this is the problem that Tozer sees, this is the problem that Taylor sees, that Hansen sees, that many philosophers, many people see, that as we have distanced ourselves from God and disenchanted and secularized the material world, it's been to our loss. But then we can ask ourselves, does a disenchanted world align with our experience? Modern writers and philosophers, even pastors like Tozer and Taylor and Hansen and Keller and others would say that what modern history has revealed in our modern culture is that secularism, materialism, or a reliance solely on the imminent frame to describe our experience as human beings and find our meaning is ultimately unsatisfactory even unreal and untrue. It doesn't land on us right. We, we try to convince ourselves since the Enlightenment that this world is all there is, and yet human after human, life after life, being after being, experience after experience, we are left feeling that does not satisfy what we know to be true. We know we have experiences that transcend the imminent frame of our physical world. We have an intuition of something beyond the physical, and we are left with unanswered questions and vague uneasy feelings. Charles Taylor would say that our world is haunted by the transcendent. And those hauntings come upon us suddenly, leaving us disarmed and without an explanation that the secular can satisfy. Julian Barnes describes one version of this experience in his book, Nothing to be Frightened of, saying, It is like being in an unfamiliar hotel room where the alarm clock has been left on by the previous occupant's setting, and at some ungodly hour you are 
literally ungodly hour, you are suddenly pitched from a sleep into darkness, panic, and a vicious awareness that this is a rented world. That's how he captures that feeling and tries to express it as a writer. He's not a Christian, he's an agnostic. And perhaps your encounters with the knowledge of the transcendent are not always so frightening. Perhaps they're even welcoming or beckoning, like the stillness that comes at sunrise, the awe that comes from staring up at night as deeply as we can into the darkness beyond the edges of the Milky Way and realizing that thousands of those points of light that we see are not stars but entire galaxies. Or perhaps when we first look into the eyes of our newborn infant and hear their first cry. In any case, whatever the situation is, we are disarmed. And the secular, the material, the imminent frame does not provide us with satisfactory answers to our experience, our longing, our existence as humans. Where barn is is awoken by terror of transcendence, C.S. Lewis would say that we are surprised by joy in discovering the transcendent. So it may be a fearful 3 a.m. awakening. It may be a surprising joy that you know transcends the material, physical, chemical, whatever explanation of what is taking place in the world. And so for the majority of people in our modern age, this tension of unsatisfied explanation of our experience materializes as it does for both Lewis and for Barnes as a growing tenderness towards the spiritual impulse and a suspicion of militant atheism. And I suspect that's where many of you found yourselves in the years just prior to you coming awake to the reality that this is a rented world and that God really is the owner. But the good news is is that this is not as terrifying as Barnes, who is still an agnostic, believes it to be. Rather, it is surprising joy, as C.S. Lewis, a Christian, discovered. Because God is not cold and distant. He's not an absent landlord. This is not a rented world. Rather, it is our most joyful discovery that God is here. He's present. He has drawn us near. This is his creation, and he lives with us as our Father. And so we have to rediscover a proper biblical understanding of God as God who he is. His transcendence as it includes both his unapproachable holiness as well as his personal imminence or presence. Because God is both terrifying and redeeming. And this is good for us as people living in this imminent frame. This is the type of thing that these philosophers, whether it's Taylor or Barnes or Tozer, would have everyone discover that there is a transcendent, and it's real, and it's for joy, not terror. That God is transcendent, but that his transcendence is not manifested or made real merely as a deistic, distant clockmaker God, but God's transcendence has always encompassed his omnipotent, omnipresent imminence in our world and in our lives. And to see this, to get God's transcendence right in our minds and lives, let's just take a quick tour through the Bible and see whether Scripture supports what Tozer says and whether God is both transcendent and imminent in a way like no other God is. Let God describe how his transcendence manifests itself to us. That's the introduction. But I told you not to worry because I've only got a page left. What does the Bible say? about God's transcendence. Well, 
The Bible repeatedly tells us that God is both creator and sustainer. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Or Psalm 135 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He has agency everywhere. He causes the vapors to ascend from the earth. Who makes the lightning for the rain? Who brings forth the wind from his treasuries? It's God. He's sustaining everything. He's imminent and transcendent at the same time. Or we could look at it from the point of view of thoughts and ideas. God's thoughts are higher, but they come down to us. Isaiah 55, 9 says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God is transcendent. We cannot comprehend the thoughts of God, it would seem. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Do you see there? So it starts out, Isaiah says, God's thoughts are higher than we can imagine. We can never reach those thoughts. But then he says, but they come down. Like the rain and the snow, just like rain and snow come down to the earth, God's thoughts, God's word comes down to us. He is transcendent and he is imminent. And his words accomplish his purpose. They are omnipotent. They accomplish what he has purposed them in our lives. So God is transcendent and he is with us in his thoughts. Bible goes on. God is unapproachable in light, but becomes imminent in the person of Jesus. 1 Timothy 6.16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Transcendent God. But Colossians 1.18, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so transcendent, unapproachable God is made imminent in the person of Jesus Christ. And he's here, entered into creation and in our imminent frame to have relationship with us. The kingdom is both now and not yet. It is coming, but it has already come. First John says, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You see, and we go back to the Gospels, we go lots of places. The kingdom of God, Jesus goes away to prepare a place for us. Right? And the disciples can't follow Jesus where he's going. And yet Jesus says to the disciples, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. God's kingdom is transcendent. It is in heaven, it's prepared for us, it's in the future, it's somewhere else, but the kingdom of God is also right here, it's right near at hand. You can accept it now and begin experiencing it even now in our imminent frame, in our material world. Kingdom of its distant and transcendent, oh, this is what I was talking about. The heaven, kingdom of heaven is far away, but the kingdom is at hand. Or we could go into the physical the Bible says the same thing. Physical rituals and 
and, and sacrifices are mere shadows of transcendent spiritual realities. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, it says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Or you could go to Hebrews 8.5, or you could go to Hebrews 10.1, where it talks about how the temple and the sacrifices and all the things that came before were mere shadows of a more transcendent reality. The cross itself is physical and material, but what is taking place spiritually through the physicality of the cross is that of transcendent significance. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them. So we, we see, and everybody who was there at the crucifixion saw a Jewish rabbi stripped naked, nailed to a cross, bleeding and dying with a crown of thorns, hung there under the judicial authority of the Roman Empire. That's what all was taking place physically. But the Bible tells us There's something transcendent taking place there at the same time. Something spiritual, something sacred, something far beyond the physical. And so I say all this to say we have to understand how God is transcendent in his omnipotence and in his omnipresence. That God is in unapproachable light. He's transcendent. He's to be glorified. He is terrifying. It would be fearful to come into the presence of that holy other, that holy superior, that holy preeminent God. It would be terrifying to come into that presence, except that that transcendent God is also imminent. He's present with us. And you go through idea after idea, scripture after scripture, doctrine after doctrine, from beginning of the Bible to the end, as we've just done in a survey there. In every category, God has said, I am higher than you, I am holier than you, I am other than you, I am creator, and yet I am with you. I am present. I am wrath and I am mercy. I am justice and I am love. I am God and I am Father. God's transcendence is not something that keeps him apart from us or that we hold him at arm's length. We honor and glorify him in his transcendence, but we understand that God's transcendence enters into and infuses our secular and material and imminent world. The, this, this right understanding of the transcendence of God was so prevalent and pervasive, it's, it seemed even to some degree in what we are about to do in communion. When you think about the the Catholic interpretation of communion, that the very bread and wine of the supper transubstantiate, that is, they don't literally transform, but in their essence, in their substance, they become the body and blood of Christ, the transcendent becoming imminent. Now, let me be clear, we don't subscribe to that particular interpretation of the Lord's Supper as Protestants for a lot of historical and, more importantly, biblical reasons that I don't need to unpack today. But as we go into communion and as we consider the transcendence and the imminence of God in our Savior, Jesus Christ, if if I was to simply ask, even among my Protestant Reformed brothers, is something more than merely physical taking place at communion? Then our answer is confidently yes. Something more than merely physical 
takes place at communion. If we ask ourselves, does the real transcendent nature of God in Jesus become imminent, become present in communion, then our answer is confidently again, yes. I mean, I didn't plan it that we'd be talking about transcendence on communion Sunday, but Holy Spirit does things like that. And, and I couldn't think of a, of a better response to an understanding of biblical transcendence than communion. Because it is in communion that the transcendent becomes imminent. We share that idea with all believers everywhere, Catholic or otherwise. The transcendent God is not far off, but has drawn near. That is, the other, the alien, the set-apart, the holy, the unapproachable, is at the same time present and approachable and welcoming and even familiar, literally family of those that acknowledge him and receive his adoption as sons and daughters. Charles Taylor would say that we all live, every human being, Christians just acknowledge it more than others, Charles Taylor would say, we all live in what he would call cross-pressured space. What happened at the cross that bridged our world with gods, that brought the transcendent into the imminent and the imminent able to reach the transcendent, that cross-pressured space, it's constantly pressing in on us, seeking to be accounted for. That's what causes us to lie awake at 3 a.m. and think. It's what causes us to marvel. It's what causes us to doubt. That cross-pressured space of our consciousness, it's forcing us to confront its transcendent reality. Every atheist and agnostic, every wondering and doubting Christian, every seeker who is seeking, who is haunted by the glimpse of the transcendent in the material and the secular world, if you just keep seeking, pressing into that transcendence that you intuitively feel, you will find the God who is both transcendent and imminent. And that's why you sense him, because he's here, and he's speaking to you, and he's calling to you. And if you keep seeking, you will find that God. He's infinite and personal. He's enthroned in heaven, and he's by your side. He has come near by the work of Jesus on the cross. Ephesians 2.13 says, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. It's this cross work of Jesus that takes a transcendent God, wholly unapproachable, and makes him imminent to us. What an incredible mystery. But our understanding of the transcendence of God has to encompass all of that. We can't put him in a box. We can't put him somewhere else. God will not permit that. I'm transcendent, and I'm imminent. I am there, and I'm with you. I'm everywhere, and I have agency to work. God has every right to stir your heart and mind exactly how he pleases to stir your heart and mind so that you will seek him. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to your table now, Father, we just remind ourselves that this is a meal for those that know you, that... uh, that call you Lord and Savior, that have touched that transcendence and known it for what it is, like C.S. Lewis did. He didn't know it for a long time, but then he just finally gave in and realized who the transcendent was, and it was you.
And Father, in this meal, as we come to take communion, we recognize that it's in the power of the cross, in the work of Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection, that the transcendent could possibly draw near to us. And that we could possibly draw near to you. And so, Father, this is what we celebrate in communion. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.